Welcome to the Neville on Fire podcast. Neville Goddard was a 20th century spiritual teacher who offered a profound message. Your creative imagination is the very source of reality. As we learn to use it properly, life becomes intelligible and rewarding. Join your host, Ed, to explore our most valuable asset, the human imagination. This is episode 17, Neville's answer to the problem of human freedom. In this episode, let's take a look at several aspects of the problem of human freedom and then finally compare all of those to Neville's answer. I'll present these different aspects of the problem following a series of, well, synchronicities, I guess. This problem has been on my mind for several months and has formed the basis for several affirmations. Well, the first event was, it seems like, subconsciously, I affected another person. Somebody very close to me said, don't you remember when you used to read these stories and it was a science fiction uh, trilogy that they were referring to? The story was called The Tripods. It was about these aliens who invaded Earth and kept humanity under control by installing on their skulls these uh, metal caps that controlled their thoughts, tracked their location, prevented them from entertaining any idea of rebellion and kept them relegated to antiquated technology. That was prescient in many ways. And I had to sort of remember what it was all about. And with a few decades now of uh, perspective, I was able to answer and say, oh, yes, that was all about mind control. That was the underlying message. Well, shortly after that, we had some dinner guests. And my friend started down this line of thought where he was discussing institutions, just like I've done in previous episodes. These institutions are, in a major way, a constraint upon human freedom. So, of course, there's many sides to the question. You could say that institutions, or at least some of them, are necessary or even beneficial. But what we want to do here is just focus on the insidious aspect, and that is that people fixate uh, unwittingly or unconsciously upon the requirements of the system and then derive their sense of identity, perhaps overwhelmingly, from that institution. So let's use the list that he gave me, um, as best I can remember it, to start this whole discussion. The first institution that has a dominant influence on the formation of the self is, of course, the family. And, you know, you can debate about the good points, the bad points, the necessary points, and detrimental points about the family. Um, But it's undeniable that that's the first institution that's going to shape the person's personality and concept of self. The next one, arguably, is uh, education, if you can call it that. The system of uh, regimentation and schooling that uh, we've seen in our society through the past several decades. The next one is religion. And what does religion tell you in a given circumstance about your own nature and identity? Of course, there's many answers to that. Another important institution that imposes constraints and conditioning upon the individual is the workplace. And then a very important one is, of course, the influence of popular commercial culture, um, by which we mean, you know, mass media, social media, all of that. And then uh, my friend in this discussion was kind of struggling to remember the last two in a list of seven, so I volunteered maybe the last two were government and finance. Government tells you who you are in certain ways, and of course, finance is a deep mystery. So what's the point of our uh, review of institutions? It's not to say that 
perhaps in, in some shape or form, they're not necessary. But just to get an idea of what their answer is to, to the idea of the formation of one's own identity. So you can probably think of examples of people in your own circle who put absolute faith in the family. That's where they center their sense of identity. Of course, people who suffer abuse and recover are likely to take a dim view of the family connection. But even those who have a so-called normal childhood or seemingly normal can have uh, issues that are unresolved, you know, with their parents and siblings and so on, going right into adulthood. And from those complications derive their own sense of identity. Then again, it's very common to uh, ground your sense of identity, your sense of self, your sense of self-worth even, in educational accomplishments, which is defensible. It has a place for um, at least genuine accomplishment. I don't know what your opinion is of what's going on in the secondary schools, for example, but I can relate something anecdotally. A family member reported at a recent dinner that the young men and women in high school, in this person's experience, are walking around the hallways on all fours because they identify as cats and dogs. And this is permitted in the institution. Then there's the addiction to the superficial self and uh, approval by others through social media. Government, more and more, is giving you a very strong sense of identity as um, an obedient team player where rules need to be followed for the common good. And with regard to finance, well, we're not told about the history of uh, what sound economics is all about, what the establishment and the control of the money system was all about, what true wealth creation really consists of, how to invest, and so on. I remember going back a few years, the consumer was most often depicted by the uh, advertisements of the con uh, commercial banks as uh, basically a cartoon-like idiot. And more recently, the, c the consumer is depicted um, in terms of uh, identity politics, as opposed to, say, uh, a real discussion of the consumer's position with respect to the monetary system, earning power, taxation, and so on. Now, in that list of seven, I guess I've forgotten to mention many institutions that give people uh, directives, imperatives, um, inform their sense of self. Uh, for example, the healthcare system, uh, the military, war, professional sports, etc. So, what conclusions can we draw at this point about the institutions? It sort of reminds me of that book by Durop called The Master Game, where he reviews all of the different vocations, the different avenues or walks of life, and what, they're, what they are in terms of a game, what their rules are, what their objectives are. At the end of the day, a person who puts absolute faith in one or more of these institutions, as we all do, it's, it's not a judgment, but they could be led into a situation, especially um, in crisis, where they realize that what they've put their faith in really is not substantial. Well, let's turn our attention now to something along the lines of uh, psychology, um, uh, self-improvement, self-help, and so on. Recently, I saw a review of C.G. Jung's technique of individuation. And there's a lot of things in there that we've already discussed in this podcast series. But then this review went into the area of person's skills and abilities and uh, how they cope with the world. And they gave the advice, 
whether this is accurately reflecting Jung's advice or not, I'm not sure, uh, to just accept your weaknesses and to work on your strengths. I found that characterization of Jung's idea as uh, sort of limiting. With regard to C.G. Jung, you'd be hard-pressed to say that he wasn't a pioneer in achieving consciousness and achieving you know, integration. Still, he always depicted himself as a scientist. And in this review that I'm talking about, they left off with his admonition that you have to establish a connection with the higher. You have to somehow establish a rapport with God. And you have the distinct impression that that's something outside you. Well, the next encounter that I want to tell you about with respect to um, human freedom has to do with a YouTube channel by the name of Academy of Ideas. Now, they have a series of videos, which I recommend that you, you check out. Uh, they're quite compelling. They have to do with, essentially, the theme of the individual versus the state. And so the ideas discussed are, for example, obedience and the rise of authoritarianism, uh, the psychology of conformity, and the manufacturing of mass psychosis. Can sanity return to an insane world? So this follows very closely on what we were discussing back in episode 12 when we were asking what characterizes uh, the programs of institutional mass hypnosis and mass psychosis. Well, in these videos, they go into uh, some detailed discussion where um, generally the whole thing is a warning against totalitarianism, which they say is encroaching more and more upon modern society, and they give a breakdown or analysis as to causes. So, for example, uh, they characterize the, the populace that is submitting to all of this as going through a psychological regression to a condition of childlike obedience. They say the whole thing is based on delusions, uh, both at the level of the uh, so-called leadership and the population at large. And then uh, these are the points that we also discussed you know, before uh, with regard to the sowing of fear. That is uh, crucial to a, a control system. Uh, sowing of fear through manufactured waves of terror. And keep in mind that these waves of terror and tyranny or control must be interspersed with periods of calm, of uh, relative ease, which is something that I think we're going through right now. Um, they make an interesting observation, and that is, uh, with regard to propaganda, monotonously repeated nonsense has more emotional appeal than logic and reason. This is the condition that people are reduced to. Um, they go on at length about smartphone technology, modern communications technology, and how this is all playing a role to work hand-in-glove with the propaganda system. And then they bring up uh, another important point that we also mentioned back in episode 12, and that is the crucial aspect of control through isolation of individuals. So the question then arises, uh, what is the counterattack? How can you uh, answer this whole situation from the point of view of your concept of self and your own personal psychology? And, well, the very first answer is, uh, they go back to C.G. Jung, ironically, and say that the first thing to do is to bring order to uh, your own mind on an individual basis. And uh, they quote Jung in saying that our age apparently cries out for the Redeemer personality. In other words, some sort of a hero figure who's going to uh, 
um, stand up against the, the tyranny of, of the whole system because this is a sort of a beacon for the rest of the, of the people. They talk about spreading information, uh, speaking the truth, and using humor and ridicule uh, to counteract the seriousness of, of the ruling class. And then they talk about building parallel structures, which is something quite effective to, in fact, more effective than political action they, they maintain. Um, and these are activities that go on uh, outside the uh, the mindset uh, of the tyranny, and thus uh, they're sowing the seeds of a free society. So I think in this whole video series, they're giving a message that is much more closely aligned with Neville's um, instructions to follow discipline of mind and to um, to call up courage within oneself. If you recall uh, the 12 disciplines that we mentioned back in episode 5. But I think that when we look back on all of these various uh, approaches to life, whether we're talking about the various institutions and the sense of identity and the sense of uh, vocation that they might give, or whether we're talking about uh, depth psychology and analyzing one's dreams and coming to some sort of an integration within oneself, or indeed whether we're talking about political philosophy of uh, liberation and the individual versus the power of the state, in all of these it seems to me that Neville has a much more fundamental approach to the human condition. He says, quite simply, just tell a man who he is. Generic man, he or she. Tell a person who he or she is. A person is the creative power itself. They are God in an attempt at self-definition. The human imagination is the very creative principle itself. Now that answer to all of the various conundrums, all of the different challenges, and the, the whole problem of evil, that answer is the most radical, it's the most fundamental, and it's the most hopeful, it's the most powerful message. So quoting Neville, man, that is generic man, man and woman, by assuming the feeling of his wish fulfilled, and then living and acting on this conviction, alters the future in harmony with his assumption. Assumptions awaken what they affirm. As soon as man assumes the feeling of his wish fulfilled, his four-dimensional self finds ways for the attainment of this end and discovers methods for its realization. I know of no clearer definition of the means by which we realize our desires than to experience in imagination what we would experience in the flesh were we to achieve our goal. So the difficulty is that people put their belief, their faith, and their attention on various institutions, various uh, external authorities, following the evidence of their senses, following their training given in society, and yet ignoring the cultivation of their own sense of self. There's no question that that takes certain ideas, uh, a certain motivation, a certain desire, and quite a lot of work. He says, quote, the undisciplined mind finds it difficult to assume a state which is denied by the senses, unquote. Well, bringing back again that idea of the release phenomenon, that is, when we're not dwelling in the higher aspect of ourselves, we're released, negatively released, into a chaotic and fragmented sort of mentality. That's the belief in other people. That's the belief in institutions. That's the belief in some method or system uh, where the divine power, the ultimate power, God, lies somewhere outside your own psyche. Quoting Neville again, 
man must firmly come to believe that reality lies within him and not without. This means that we embrace individual freedom as the noble idea in the face of the state and at the same time follow Neville and realize that any action you might take without first adopting the consciousness of the thing is just, as he would say, the futile readjustment of surfaces. Well, I don't know if you followed up on the story of John Searle that I had mentioned in the last episode. Take care. This is John Searle, S-E-A-R-L. There's no E on the end. He was not particularly religious, but instead relied on his own native intelligence and intuition and concluded that, quote, nothing is impossible, but that the state of your mind makes it so. He also intuited this motto, if my mind can conceive, if my heart can believe, then I can achieve, which, of course, parallels Neville's message perfectly. So this is the guidance we are offered by people who really understand our nature and identity and the true source of human freedom. Thank you for listening. Remember to check the show notes and subscribe to the Neville on Fire podcast. 